This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Welcome. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Uh, my name is Brian Vincent Weber, and this is Bartender Journey Podcast number 89, and it's a good one. I've got an interview with Jim Meehan, and this is actually uh, a portion of the interview I did with Jim at his great bar in Manhattan. You know the one, PDT. And uh, it's an excerpt. How do you say that word? Ex- excerpt? Uh, as I was saying, it's a portion of the interview I did with Jim, and uh, to hear the full-length version, you need to be a Tales 365 member. Tales 365 is a great way to be part of the Tales of the Cocktail Experience all year long. They have a lot of uh, they have live webinars and dinners and tours and videos and audio, and some of that is audio that I produced for them. There's a, a whole section of a whole bunch of podcasts that I produced just for them. So uh, you can go check that out and go to Tales365.com, and they're actually they're doing a uh, membership drive net right now, and you can get a better price by uh, signing up now before the end of the, end of the year. Uh, the price is going up, so check it out. And Before we get into the interview, I just want to tell you about a couple of cool things you can find on my website, which is bartenderjourney.net. Uh, my friend Chris Tunsdale, he's created a great resource for learning about bartending and cocktails and spirits. And if you click over to my to my website, bartenderjourney.net, you'll find a link along with today's show notes. And it'll direct you over to Chris's site so you can find out more about that great course that he created. Also, I've mentioned in the past Flavar, which makes these really fun spirit tasting packs and uh you can get some really interesting spirits that you probably never never would have heard of otherwise and uh so check that out too you can go to my website like uh, along with today's show notes and you can click through and find out more about flavor and i'm still trying to get my friends over here on a uh to Tuesday when I usually record this Tuesday afternoon, trying to get them over to uh, taste some of these great whiskeys that I got from Flavar. And it's hard to get them over here on a Tuesday afternoon, so I might just have to taste some. You know what? Let's take a little taste right now. The heck with those other guys. All right, I've got here a uh, Koval single barrel millet whiskey made with millet rather than corn as bourbon or uh, barley or whatever. So uh, apparently this was made in Minnesota. I had never heard it before it showed up. I'd never heard of it before it showed up here in the mail from Flavar. So uh, let's pour a little in the dram here and take a taste. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, hmm. sweeter, a little sweeter than I expected, sort of like a bourbon, but it's got a, um, hmm. it tastes cherries. And that's really interesting. I like that. All right, I'm going to enjoy a little more of that while we listen to the, my interview with Jim Meehan. Well, uh, I'm here with the famous Jim Meehan and, uh, at PDT, and uh, I was thinking on the way over here, it's kind of interesting that for a place called Please Don't Tell, it's pretty internationally famous. <laughs> the name of the bar and what we hope to achieve uh, do not always <laughs> correspond. Yeah, when you create a kind of a magical place here. What do, you, what do you think other bartenders and bar owners can learn from what you've done here? Well, I mean... I think that for us, we opened Brian Shabarro, who owns Crypt Dogs and opened mm-hmm. it six years before partnering with me on PDT. You know, we opened the bar we wanted to drink in, a place that we uh, felt comfortable entertaining our friends and, and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, a place that embodies all of our values. So I, I think that, you know, there are obviously sacrifices in, in everything and, and compromises you need to make in business. But sure. I think that there are a number, there are so many of them in the bar business that you, if you're going to get into this business, you better do it because you love it and, and do something that you believe in. So I think that 
thankfully we've been able to make money doing what we believe in and, and sort of enjoy doing. It's a, it's a tough business to uh, keep going, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's mean? a tough business. To, <laughs> I don't think it's a great business to get into to make money. You know, yeah, right. if you want to make money, there's banking and yeah. many other more sane um, economic opportunities. So I think that for us, it's just been, you know, a, a, a big pleasure. And I think that that kind of informs how we operated and, and thankfully has led to us becoming successful and people telling about it. Yeah. I think in New York, you know, if you tell a New Yorker what to do, they're going to do the opposite. So in some ways, um, the name Please Don't Tell sort of plays into our master plan anyhow. <laughs> right. How do you think a bar can be successful in a small market that, to, that wants to do high-end things? There's tons of successful yeah. cocktail bars in, a high, in you know smaller markets. Yeah. Um, I think that in general, it all boils down, you know, once again, if you want to open a bar to make money, you know, that there's that's almost to me like a a challenging question you know i think you gotta you gotta open a bar like for instance if you love beer if you love wine Mm -hmm. or if you love sports or if you love just kind of talking to people like i think you should open sort of bar that makes sense for you right and then i think financial considerations it's not that they run secondary but i don't think you like sit down and you think to yourself i'm gonna make cocktails how am i gonna make make a dime off this or how am i gonna make how many, I, I don't think that the, the two kind of go together. And, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think that making money and smaller markets, like they don't necessarily, um, they're not mutually exclusive of each other. Right. When, I think that people want to, you know, customers want to drink well and they want to feel like there's a value proposition behind everything they order right. in a bar. Right. So as an operator and as a bartender, you know, and as a customer as well, like, I want to spend my money where I know that I'm getting value. And right. I think there's no value to me in sour mix. No. <laughs> you know, personally. Right, right. And, and I think that, you know, not to like be all high and mighty, there are a lot of bars that people go to to get drunk in. And, mm. and that, you know, the culinary aspect of the cocktail or the Epicurean interest in it is totally secondary. Right. And those bars don't need to serve the sort of cocktails we serve at PDT. Right. You know, right. Um, I've... I've never, thankfully, I've never had really worked in one of those bars, but it's a really kind of sad environment to be in. Yeah, yeah. Well, even even high in places like this, do you think, you know, I mean, you obviously have to make some concessions to cost. Do you, do you see that uh, as a trend in the future, sort of? Uh, What's very interesting about New York is that uh, our pricing structure has a lot more to do, and this speaks to smaller markets, but it has a lot more to do with what the sort of general, the mean cost of a cocktail is in Manhattan. I mean, most bars in Manhattan, you'll find a cocktail ranges between $11, $12, and $16, mm-hmm. no matter whether they're pouring it with secretly with sour mix or not. <laughs> right. So a lot of our cost of doing business has to do with our rent and the, yeah. the cost of opening a, you know, and operating a bar <laughs> right. in um, um, Manhattan. Sure. So, you know, that's what we're thinking of mm-hmm. as far as our costing structure. And for us, you know, I price all of our cocktails at $15, so, mm-hmm. you know, some drinks have a, a higher pour cost than others, but sure. but for the most part, the drinks that, that are most popular have lower pour costs and help, you know, stabilize the drinks that have higher pour costs. Mm-hmm. So, there's like a math behind it, just yeah, like sure. everything, but, sure. yeah, and once do, again. <laughs> do you mind if I ask what your sort of average pour cost is that you're um, shooting for? I mean, I think in general, our cocktails are $15, so mm-hmm. I want our cocktails to cost anywhere between 350 and 450 and, mm-hmm. and and i think that some you know one of the things i always tell a lot of uh, bartenders who are especially new to this is that 
you know, they go into their, their P&L meeting with the chef and the owner and they sort of look at their costs. And most businesses look at the percentage of the cost, not necessarily the net. And right. cocktails, you know, high-end cocktails are a lot more like fine dining. You run a higher pour cost, like just like you'd run a higher food cost, but the margin you make is much higher in, in the sense that instead of making 3 or $4 a drink, you make $10 a drink. Mm-hmm. So, But your overhead's higher. Well, right. <laughs> right. But, but I think at the end of the day, like you're – do you want to it's just a different way of running a business it's yeah. more fine dining than you know running a bistro right that makes sense well you, you touched on something very briefly in your book about the uh the lights and the music uh and i, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough in, in a lot of cocktail books and you know i mean you 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 outlined you know where where you place the cool the coolers and you know yeah. where, the, where the fruit trays go and everything yeah and uh you know, I appreciated that you brought that up, but could you elaborate a little more on that? The lights, the music, and the yeah, temperature of the room? I mean, I think the lights, the music, and temperature for me are very um, much... One quick second. Yep, take your time. I think that when an operator walks into their restaurant or their bar, the first thing they do is adjust the lights, the music, or the temperature. And I think there are three things which are sort of like the pulse or the heartbeat of a bar or a restaurant. Yeah. You know, in... I think that in the environment, one of the things I, I've learned about PDT is that, you know, in the beginning when I was young and more wet behind the ears, like I, I was so concerned about whether people would drink cocktails. This was in 2007, mm-hmm. being uh-huh. on St. Mark's Place. Like I fully expected to be, you know, we opened with three different flavored vodkas and <laughs> fully plan on making Cosmos all night long. Right. <laughs> and it, thankfully, it, you know, it didn't go that way. You know, people, we barely sell any vodka at all here, or we didn't for a long time and now we have it on the menu. But you worry so much about cocktails themselves when you're young and you get older and you realize that the environment you create is what determines whether people order cocktails or not. And and I think that people go to a bar to fit in and part of how you set up your bar either helps them fit in and helps them understand what sort of concept they're in or Mm -hmm. has no sort of identity or no sort of marking posts. So people kind of just go ahead and order whatever they know that they probably could get without feeling awkward in, in the bar. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, going back to lighting, temperature and music, you know, all those little um, details like those kind of to me help subconsciously even persuade people to embrace what we're trying to do here as opposed to question it or or worse, um, combat it. Yeah. Well, uh, can you offer any advice to inexperienced or beginner bartenders? Yeah. I mean, I think mixology is something that you can, I feel like mixology is, is like a study, you know, it's a, something that you can sort of, I wouldn't say master quickly, but there are, there's a lot of resources out there now that kind of help you get up to speed with it and become, you know, conversant or, or you can be, I feel like you can become a mixologist in your spare time. Mm-hmm. Bartending is something that is, you have to you got to do it, you know? So a lot of young bartenders will tell me that they're in one place and they will kind of want to be at this next place or they're sort of looking for a mentor. They're sort of looking for the next best thing, which is great. And it's part of who we are. Mm -hmm. But I also think that part of growing and part of growth is hunkering down and really understanding that you're, the way you grow is you make the place that you're in better and you make the people that you're working with better. And you, you kind of use those, opportunities where you where you maybe are thinking to yourself man I wish I was working down the street or I wish I could be working with someone else and you're like or I can try to make this place that I'm in that that is a few steps away from being great much better and maybe these guys who I'm working with if they knew what I knew I could sort of 
we could sort of be a better team. And, and I think that those are the things that I would suggest sort of people who are just kind of coming up in is like, seek out mentors, but but also don't be afraid to become one yourself. I mean, I think I've learned more through the process of teaching than I ever did under the wing of some of the most brilliant people that I've worked with. And to teach that. something, you have to know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to go back a little bit, the, of course, the bartender has a financial incentive to make the place he's working at the best it can be, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that when you do that, you're incentivized for it, you right. know, both in tips and usually in, in management perks. So I think that, you know, sometimes switching pools, you know, is, is counterintuitive to maybe what's best for your career. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I liked what you said in your uh, in the section of your book called the PDT experience. We are either respectful of the guest's privacy or eager to engage those who are keen to carry on a conversation. And I think yeah, that's I mean, a great. I've great worked statement. with um, I've worked with some bartender. I've worked with one bartender in particular who's gone on to become an incredibly mm-hmm. successful restaurateur. Um, and I feel like when there are certain bartenders, when you're in, when they're when you're being served by them, they sort of only have one service style. Mm. And I think that for me, it's important to gauge, you know, someone's maybe having a date or a business meeting, or they're having a bad day, or they're you know in need of, may, or maybe you can just see they're so interested in what you're doing, right. and you know whether you engage or you don't engage, to me is always based on the situation, is not based on my ego or, or the sort of like the experience that I'm, you know, insist that you have if you visit me, you know what I mean? So I feel like I'm very adaptable to uh, each and every guest and experience and, and have very little, I don't have an agenda when I'm tending bar. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, if you could just uh, give us one, a couple of traits you look for when hiring a bartender. One of the things I always say to people is that I sort of you know, when I'm interviewing them is that I can't really train you. I didn't, I can't, I can't, I didn't raise you and, I, and I'm not going to raise you behind the bar. So in general, I look for those like little characteristics that show something that mom or dad did for you. You know what I mean? Something like politeness. Like I, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never forget interviewing a former bartender of mine who I was in time hiring as a barback and he came so applying for the barback position. He came in a shirt and tie and coat. <laughs> and I feel like when someone dresses up for the interview and they show up on time, it's like they're taking me seriously. They're taking the opportunity seriously. That means something to me. Mm. Um, I take a resume, a well, a well-written, organized, uh, designed resume resume seriously. I take um, hiring someone is a lot like dating uh, <laughs> in the sense that there are you know a lot of times people ask like you know when do you hire or like how many people do you hire and hiring is not really something that you do unless you need to fill a position. So right. timing is such a huge part of hiring and really such a huge part of all you know someone's performance throughout the course of their time with you. So things like when can you start or oh, yeah. you know what's your what's your availability or what's your flexibility and and I find that the people that that come to me in an interview who can start right away and who can sort of devote the amount of time I need to train them and who are you know, diligent about getting about, you know, that training, like, to me, that's huge. And, and as far as on the trails, you know, there's some people on a trail who, like, the trainer has to almost follow them around because they're not, they're not remaining, you know, they're not allowing the trainer to train them. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's very important to me when someone is training that they are um, humble enough to, to really just sort of follow someone around very closely and just sort of do as they say. Right. Yep. So it's I, I find I found after many years of hiring that 
I can be deceived. I've, I've not, every, every hire I've made is not perfect and someone right. can deceive me in, in a 45 minute interview and, and over three days of, um, in over three days of training or four days of training. So I, I think that ultimately you got to go back to those traits that like, you know, were how you were raised. Mm. You know, I can train people how to do the job the way that I want the job done, but I can't train people to do what their parents hopefully train them to do. Right. Just be of... good people and be upright and be have integrity and, and be kind and thoughtful and those things. Those are things that you either came with it or, or, or you don't. Right. That's great. Thank you so much for talking. No, I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thanks for doing all Did this research. Yeah, I'd be happy to. <laughs> that was a great interview. I really enjoyed spe- uh, meeting with Jim, sitting at his bar, and uh, I was really thankful to him for uh, granting me that time. Jim is such a nice guy, gracious guy, smart guy, businessman. And uh, I got a chance to, uh, while I was down in New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail, to go to the duo event where he was actually behind the bar uh, making, uh, making me a Negroni which was awesome. It was actually sponsored by um, one of the rum companies, and uh, it was a rum Negroni. It was friggin' delicious, and it made by Jimmy Han himself, which was incredible. So anyway, you can uh, hear even more of that interview if you go to tales365.com and join up, uh, join the Tales of the Cocktail 365 program. It's a great program, and I encourage you to check it out. Again, my name is Brian Vincent Weber, and you can check me out on, what, Twitter, Barkeep Tips. I'm on Facebook. There's the Bartender Journey uh, Facebook page. Just search for Bartender Journey in the search bar. And my website, bartenderjourney.net. I feel like I'm forgetting something. You can always email me at vince.bartender at gmail.com. And I look forward to speaking to you next time. As I said, I'm, this is going to be a once-every-other-week kind of podcast, uh, unless I have extra time and uh, somehow manage to squeeze out another one. But uh, I will talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening.